Okay, so this was an idea I had for a topic for an episode from before we'd even recorded the first episode of Vase. It's darkness. That's it, just darkness. Something that's been on my mind a lot recently, mainly I think because it's February when we're recording this, and by this point we seem to have just been living through months and months of darkness. At this time of year it's sometimes like there's no daylight at all. You just wake up, go to work in the darkness, get home after work in the darkness. The darkness feels oppressive at this time of year. On the other side, around October, the longer nights seem more exciting, somehow full of promise, like we're waiting for something. The nights get longer and longer until we hit the solstice, midwinter. After that point's passed, we're waiting for something else. The nights grow shorter and shorter until midsummer. And the darkness now feels like something that I'm impatient to be rid of, an inconvenience, like a guest that's stayed too long. But the thing is, I'm not sure that darkness is something to be got rid of at all. That's not really how I see it anymore. Because that's the nature of darkness. You can't get rid of it. It's always there. Always. The best we can do is temporarily hold it off and maybe pretend that it isn't there. You see, what's interesting about darkness is that it's not a thing that we quantify or qualify or even define on its own terms, I don't think. Because what it is actually is an absence of light. Without light, it's dark. And because of the way that most of us are naturally more active in the day and more likely to sleep at night, or well, some of us anyway, Dr. Alan Greenfield, we consider light to be the default state when actually darkness is what's there waiting in the places that the light can't reach. The light can and will run out, but darkness is there forever. I'm not a physicist, obviously, but I think that that's the way that entropy works. Eventually the sun burns out, eventually all the stars will burn out, and whatever's left out there, after the cataclysm, that's darkness. That's a complete state of no thermodynamic free energy, also known as the heat death of the universe. As Lord Kelvin himself described it, that's a state of universal rest and death, and the whole universe running down like a clock and stopping forever. The big chill. True darkness. Just thinking about it gives me the chills. There's something profoundly frightening about that in a really fundamental way. But what is it about darkness that makes it something to fear? Something to avoid? Something to get rid of. Something we banish with the most primitive and characteristically human technology that there is. Fire. Ever since we've had fire, we've used it to hold off the dark. This, I think, is because darkness is the most basic of archetypes. Something that's so much a part of us, probably on an evolutionary level. We're more vulnerable in the dark. We've evolved to be wary of it. You can't see what predator is there lurking, and that's probably still good advice to follow out there now. But even in safe spaces, our homes, our bedrooms, there's still darkness, and that darkness still holds monsters. When I was a kid, I was afraid of the dark, and I can remember why. It's one of my earliest memories. I must have been two or three. I don't mean to go all Whitley Strieber on you. Strieber famously had a paranormal encounter with Mr. Peanut, 
the snack food mascot. And I actually had a similar experience, but with the Monster Munch Monsters. The Monster Munch Monsters were a collection of brightly coloured beasts who were used to advertise Monster Munch, which is a kind of strongly flavoured crisp, like a puffed corn chip for listeners outside of the UK. There was a different monster on the bag for each different flavour, and they used to be advertised on TV all the time. It was a very popular brand, not so much anymore, though they're still around, but the TV adverts used to have all the monsters just basically messing about. You can still see these adverts on YouTube, and I'll, uh, I'll link to them in the show notes. But when I was two or three, or maybe four, but no older, I remember waking up in the night after a dream. I can't remember much about the dream or what it was about. But when I woke up, the Monster Munch monsters were there in the darkness of my room. They had a weird translucent quality to them. And I was waiting for them to fade away, and they didn't. I just watched in terror as they surrounded my bed, and and they danced. They sort of danced hand in hand in a circle around my bed. It's kind of freaking me out now just thinking about it and I screamed I screamed and I screamed and it wasn't until my mum came into my room opened the door and let the light in that these monsters went away old Whitley Schieber would say that that was a screen memory an implanted memory for some experience that my mind just couldn't handle something so weird that my mind couldn't take it but I would disagree But I'm I'm not convinced that it was just a nightmare either. I've never had anything like that happen to me since. Nothing that vivid. Those monsters just wouldn't fade away like dreams do. Uh, I know that sceptical people listening would say that it was either a trick of my mind as the residue of the dream dissolved into wakefulness or even that I was still asleep dreaming that I was awake seeing the monsters in my room. But to these people, I would say, well, you weren't fucking there, were you? That isn't just one of my earliest memories, but it's my first memory of something weird. Something supernatural, paranormal happening to me. And after that day, I was scared of the dark. I wouldn't go to sleep my room was dark and I had to have the door open and the landing light on and listen you're about to get full hind bingo here but the uh, the teachings of the Catholic faith didn't help things full as they were of spirits revenants angelic visitations and demonic possessions and sitting there at the heart of this darkness was the big man himself the devil Lucifer, Satan, the morning star. My imagination was so vivid and I was so credulous of these things that I didn't sleep in darkness until well into my teenage years. I mean, even after that, I was still afraid. Even into adulthood, I would wake in the darkness, in the stillness of the witching hour, in the dead of night, knowing that there was something else in the room. Not like sleep paralysis. Now I, I could move. I was awake, but in my fitful, half-sleeping state, I was sure that it had happened, and the devil himself was in my room, there to claim me, to personally drag me to hell. 
It sounds silly now, but it was terrifying in a way that I'm not sure I can explain or do justice to. Basically, I would awake to find myself facing what I feared most on a very elemental level. Beyond fearing being broke or catching some weird disease or getting into a fight with a stranger, this was the darkness coming alive to claim something from deep inside me that I had no way to cling on to. You see, this is one of the reasons that we evolved to be afraid of the dark. Because we can't see what's there, and in the spaces we can't see, our minds will always fill in the blanks. This is true for small blind spots in our peripheral vision. Our brain rebuilds those blind spots with such precision that we don't even know that we can't see them. Remember the disappearing skull from the Esbourne Book of Ghosts? If you know, you know. But we also do it for the areas surrounding us, and as the distance from our eyes gets further, the picture becomes less distinct and more unconsciously imagined. For example, I'm not looking at the floor right now, but I have an idea what it's like. My brain has built up a pretty much complete picture of the small room I'm sitting in, and it's more or less completely wrong. When I'm not consciously thinking about it, my mind convinces me I know what the room is like behind me. This is built on fragments of low-quality memory and confabulation. There could be literally anything behind my head right now, and I wouldn't have a clue. It's like they might be giants, said. Where your eyes don't go, a filthy scarecrow waves its broomstick arms, and it does a parody of each unconscious thing you do. Darkness is a black mirror, which we scry our darkest fears onto and see them reflected directly back at us. And it's very, very effective at doing that. The closer we get to total darkness, the more we start to lose ourselves. It only takes a short time in near total darkness before the brain starts pouring out the contents of your unconscious, which you see projected there into the darkness, like a particularly terrifying David Lynch movie. It's all about balance, you see, because more powerful than the archetypal survival instincts that pre-program us to be afraid of the dark is the necessity that we must experience periods of darkness and also light on a regular basis in order for us to be able to function in any kind of normal way. The alternating periods of light and darkness regulate one of the most mysterious and elusive of our natural physiological processes, the circadian rhythms. And of course, there's no better way to illustrate this than by reference to cave experiments. Yes, experiments in caves, and not just any caves, but the notoriously weird Mammoth Cave System in Kentucky. 
and courses the mammoth caves. So in 1938, Nathaniel Kleitman, a Moldovian scientist and father of modern sleep research, author of the seminal 1939 book Sleep and Wakefulness, the guy who co-discovered REM sleep and conducted studies into the flexibility of the human circadian rhythms, he just walked into a cave in Kentucky with another researcher and stayed there for 32 days. This was 1938. What he was trying to do was use the absence of natural light to break free of the 24-hour day cycle and adjust to a 28-hour day, made up of sleeping for 9 hours, working for 10, and then 9 hours of leisure time. Which actually sounds like a pretty good balance if it weren't in a fucking damp, rat-infested cave in Kentucky. The results were inconclusive. There were only two participants and Kleitman never successfully adapted, but the other participant did so they came away without any conclusions and presumably without encountering any goblins. Michel Sifra, a French scientist and explorer, conducted decades worth of cave experiments with the wonderfully science fiction aim of helping astronauts who he thought may have a similar experience in the darkness of space on long interplanetary journeys. In 1962, Sifra spent two months underground in a cave with a small lamp powered by a generator as his only light source. He slept when he wanted, he was awake when he wanted, and he found that his periods of wakefulness and sleep would vary greatly from as many as 40 hours awake to as few as six. But he settled on an average of about 24.5 hour days. He later spent a full six months alone in a cave in Texas. Again, what he found was that he became unmoored from the standard day-night cycle and his periods of wakefulness and rest would again vary wildly. These cave experiments effectively played with different periods of darkness and light and the resulting effect on human physiology. But crucially, the participants had access to artificial light if and when they needed it. So what happens if the darkness is constant? Well, things go bad very quickly. In 2008, a documentary was filmed for BBC Two which involved volunteers being taken down into a nuclear bunker in almost total darkness. The aim was to investigate how this sort of sensory deprivation may be weaponized and used as a form of torture, and in doing so to validate the claims of captives in institutions such as Guantanamo Bay. These experiments weren't completely unprecedented. Similar experiments were carried out by Canadian psychologist Professor Donald Hebb in the 1950s and had to be halted on the grounds that the subjects couldn't physically, mentally or emotionally endure anything more than 24 hours to 48 hours in total darkness. One of the participants in the BBC experiment in 2008 described the effects of being locked in a dark room 48 hours. Let's be clear, he was in isolation too. He could hear, but there was no one to talk to. So there are obviously factors at play here other than just the darkness. But the darkness he was subjected to was almost total. You see, humans without tools can make sound, but we can't make light. So for the first half hour, he just talked and sang to himself. But after only half an hour, this got boring, so he just stared into the darkness until he fell asleep. 
But then when he woke up, he found himself still in darkness, and he'd completely lost track of time. After 18 hours, he was experiencing severe paranoia and just burst into tears. After 24 hours, he reported that he felt like his brain was going to sleep. After 30 hours, he was continuously pacing. It was at the 40 hour mark that he started to hallucinate. He saw a a pile of 500 oysters in front of him. He said, I felt as though the room was taking off from underneath me. For the first time I realized that the lack of stimulation was driving me close to insanity. I felt nothing but numbness, as though I was losing the will to live. But as with so many of these things, the dose makes the poison. Some people use enforced periods of almost total darkness as therapy. There are darkness retreats that you can go to where you live in close to absolute darkness for days on end. There's an article by Maya Croft, which I'll link to in the show notes, in which she describes the experiences of a uh, presumably very privileged person who went on a darkness retreat in Thailand. And what they said was that after just a day or two in the dark, they began to see flickering lights behind their eyes. Then came the visions. They said, you start seeing geometric patterns, tunnels, buildings that are carefully carved and decorated, symbols from traditions you didn't know. You really see all sorts of images as the subconscious mind is emptying out. This sounds to me like dreaming while you're awake. And that's the other reason that we've evolved to feel vulnerable in darkness. Because we all have to sleep, however hard that might be for some of us. And some people prefer to sleep in darkness. Most people prefer to sleep in darkness. You can't be more vulnerable than when you're lying there unconscious asleep. And yeah, it's completely possible to sleep when it's light. I I do it all the time. But even then, almost everyone closes their eyes and thereby creates their own darkness. Seemingly necessary for sleep to a greater or lesser degree. See, sleep is the darkness on which our dreams are painted. And for whatever reason, we seem to need darkness to be able to do this. And this is no doubt connected in some way to how people who are deprived of light start to hallucinate. But this is a small private section of darkness that each of us carves out for ourselves in sleep. The darkness that we need to dream. The darkness we need to let our unconscious minds roam free to cavort and explore. Some say that dreams may be nothing more than the random impulses released by the brain during certain stages of sleep. 
a disordered side effect of a natural and necessary biological function. But I see it as the opposite. Amongst other things, I think that the private darkness of sleep, by way of dreams, allows our minds to make sense of the random disorder and largely senseless events that make up each and every one of our lives. I'm sorry if you're a, a determinist, if you, if you believe that your life is taking place on an alterable track, like a fatalistic cargo train carrying your very being through to its inevitable conclusion, or uh, if you happen to be the chosen one. Anyway, even if any of these circumstances are true, it seems that destiny has led you to listen to this very thing at this very moment. So, go figure. I've talked so far about darkness largely in a literal sense, a physical sense. As I said before, darkness is the absence of light, but metaphorically, I don't think that that is necessarily the case. I think it's, it's possible for someone to embrace both a light-hearted outlook and have a heart of darkness, yeah, and that's in a way that physically is impossible, because literal physical light and darkness cannot exist at the same time if one is the absence of the other, and this is an important distinction to make. All of us, everyone, and certainly everyone listening to this, has a dark side. They have darkness inside of them. Now, what does this mean? Well, I think it varies from person to person. But I can tell you now what it isn't necessarily. It isn't necessarily evil. It could be. I mean, it's definitely true, I think, that all of us carry within us the possibility of committing something truly awful. Uh, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe said, There is no crime of which I do not deem myself capable. And I agree. But when we consider this, in most cases, what we're talking about is a normal process. It's a hypothetical. It's a healthy way in which our personalities can recognize their boundaries. A way in which we can form our own moralities or test those pushed upon us by religion or parents or teachers. And this can be seen in the simple fact that most people don't commit heinous crimes most of the time. Well, you could call this latent potential for evil darkness, of course, but that isn't what I'm getting at here. Semantics, yes, but you've listened this far, so you may as well follow me to the end. What I'm saying is, if the darkness inside us isn't necessarily the potential for evil, then what is it? Well, what I consider this darkness to be is something close to what Jung called the shadow, which is the uncivilized, perhaps even primitive side of ourselves. Something separate from the persona. Jung said that the shadow is that hidden, repressed, for the most part, inferior and guilt-laden personality whose ultimate ramifications reach back into the realm of our animal ancestors. If it has been believed hitherto that the human shadow was the source of evil, it can now be ascertained on closer investigation that the unconscious man, that is, his shadow, does not consist only of morally reprehensible tendencies, but also displays a number of good qualities, such as normal instincts, appropriate reactions, realistic insights, creative impulses, etc. So, what this means to me, and I understand that this is a, a gross simplification, but how I see it is that it's 
Those things that we choose to suppress, the parts of ourselves that we lock away, push down, keep silent. And if these things aren't necessarily evil, then we're gagging completely healthy and necessary parts of ourselves. And absolutely everyone is doing this. Like a fucked up, pathological, self-repressed, psychological fingerprint, the darkness inside everyone is different. So this is where I found myself. Over the last year since starting VASE, since voluntarily engaging in what Robert Anton Wilson called induced brain change, I realized that there was a lot of myself, essential fundamental parts of the unique gestalt that makes me up, the animal that I am, the person that I am, the living vessel of spirit and divinity, whatever that might mean, that I am, that I've been keeping in the darkness for years, decades now, and all of a sudden I'm trying to pull those into the light even if it's just to get a good look at these demons before I push them back. Because I agree with Jung, who went on to say that darkness is a living part of the personality, and it cannot be argued out of existence or rationalised into harmlessness. I might not like everything I find, but it's in there whether I find it or not, and whether I like it or not. This being the first year of VASE, of this active seeking that I've been doing, it's also the first winter of VASE, and the darkness that I still find oppressive and difficult, it's made me confront these ideas. Along with the low mood and the tendency to ruminate and ponder, I've found that it also unlocks a deeper creativity in myself. It's not easy to access and not always a pleasant process, but I've discovered that if I can push through the discomfort and fear and difficulty, what I find there in the darkness are ideas and concepts that I wouldn't have arrived at otherwise. A wellspring that I may not have even dug for in the months of light evenings, warmth and sunshine. Because darkness is the unknown. Not just of what's there buried in our psyches, but of a future that we can't divine. Parts of the past that we can't resolve. And those bits of the present that we can't rationalise or comprehend. and I'm trying to get comfortable with that. As I've already said, in the absence of light, we start very quickly to lose track of time. Without time, we lose an important measurement of our being. And in doing so, I think, we lose the boundaries of ourselves, of our individuality. And if this induced association is properly and reasonably managed, we can venture so deeply into the singularity of ourselves that we can start to find more meaningful ways to connect to everything else. The external, maybe even the ethereal or the divine. And perhaps that's why darkness isn't tolerated in our modern society. With our electric lights chasing the darkness from our homes, drowning out the darkness on our streets, with carefully managed social media curation which denies the darker parts of life completely with pop psychology unleashing a torrent of unregulated, unsupervised and unhinged self-help techniques encouraging affirmations that denounce, banish and make a prisoner of the darkness and the darker aspects of ourselves and with a reluctance to discuss the shadow of fear of embarrassment or of it seeming taboo or being shunned. 
In doing these things, in fearing these things, we choose to perpetuate the myth of the individual rather than considering the possibility that we are all part of a single fantastic consciousness, woven together out of both darkness and light, all that we can see and all that we can't, like the endless expanse of space which stares back at us when we look up into the night sky, just as our ancestors did since the dawn of time, allowing us to see, without fear, our reflection in the shimmering black surface of the infinite.